Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Keep us centered around the one thing that binds us together as family. I mean, you you don't have to be told that there are a lot of differences between all of us, right? Like, there's a lot of diversity in this room, a lot of variety in this room. We all come from different backgrounds. We all come with different experiences. We all have different preferences and opinions, but all together, we are a people who believe that Jesus is king. And we believe that Jesus is teaching us how to live the best life possible. And that's why for the last few weeks, we've been participating in a series of messages that we've called Glittering Vices. We've been talking about the seven capital vices, or a list that you may have heard referred to before as the seven deadly sins. And so far, we've walked through a few of these individually, and some of the words that we've used were unfamiliar and took some explanation. We talked about the vice of vainglory. We talked about sloth. We talked about envy. And some of the words that we have used are old-fashioned kind of words. In fact, if you missed some of the initial messages in this series, I would be thrilled for you to go back and catch up on those, especially if you think you know what those words mean already, because we took some time to explain the real meaning and the more helpful meaning behind some of those. But what we've been finding together is that these vices that go by these old-fashioned names are actually still very relevant to us today. In fact, we've discovered as we've looked into what these vices look like in a human life and a human soul, we've discovered that most of us are still faced with these on a regular basis even today. But another thing that we've discovered as we've looked at this list together is that this list we've called the seven deadly sins is not actually a list of sins at all. It's not a list of actions. It's a list of habits, a list of characteristics, a list of traits that have the potential to take root in a human heart and to cause all sorts of damage by leading us into sinful behavior, destructive, damaging behavior. And so the reason that it's so helpful for us to study this list is because as we consider what these vices are, as we familiarize ourselves with what these vices look like, it gives us an opportunity to begin recognizing tendencies in ourselves. We can start seeing these things for what they are, recognizing when they're beginning to fester in our own soul and might lead us down a dangerous path. And we're trying to avoid poisoning ourselves, right? So you probably didn't see the obituary that came out of Pittsburgh last month and probably wouldn't have recognized it even if you had, but on September 7th, loved ones mourned the passing of Dr. Richard Moriarty, 
And you probably don't recognize that name, Richard Moriarty, but there's quite a few of you who I bet would recognize some of his work because Dr. Moriarty was, back in the 70s, the pediatrician who developed the bright green Mr. Yuck sticker to warn kids to stay away from poisonous substances. I don't know if any of you remember these stickers, but at my school down in South Texas, they took us through a whole, like, we, all of the student body got together in my elementary school, and they talked to us about avoiding dangerous situations, you know, with household items and chemicals and all of this, and they sent us home with these sheets full of these little stickers. They were about the size of a half dollar or something like that, and we, would, we were supposed to take these sheets home and give them to our parents so that our parents could put these stickers on every container, every bottle, every jar, every spray can of something that held a dangerous household chemical in our home. And we've been taught that if we see a container that has a Mr. Yuck sticker on it, that we're not supposed to touch it because it's got something dangerous, something that could hurt you, something that could make you sick. Of course, the problem with a warning sticker like this is that it really is just a warning. Mr. Yuck is really just a deterrent, but it's probably not a strong enough deterrent in every case to overcome a child's curiosity. There's some children who just might not, might not even understand what that sticker means, and then there are some children who have been taught what that sticker means, but their curiosity might be even stronger than their deterrence. They might, because the container looks enticing enough or interesting enough, they might just blow right past that warning sticker. And there's a similar dynamic that's at work here when we talk about the seven capital vices, because as we have these conversations together, it's as if we're putting a warning sticker, a Mr. Yuck sticker, on each of these vices and saying, this is harmful for your soul. Sloth is damaging to your spiritual life. Envy will poison you from the inside out. Vainglory, that stuff will make you sick. Like we're, we're putting stickers on each and every one of these vices, but these are called vices for a reason. And the reason is because they're pretty tempting on their own. They're appealing on their own. And so just having some kind of a deterrent there might not be strong enough to keep us away. And so the decision that we're having to wrestle with together in this series, the question that each and every one of us individually is having to ask in this series is, do I trust the wisdom of Jesus? Do I trust the wisdom of the Scripture? Do I trust the wisdom of the Christians who have gone before me who have tried to warn me that these vices have the opportunity, have the potential to sabotage my spiritual well-being. Do I trust Jesus enough? Do I trust the Scripture enough? Do I trust the Christians who have gone before me and walked ahead of me on this journey enough to trust their warning? And I, I, I think that being able to trust those voices is never more difficult then in that moment when we think, I know better. I know better than they do. You ever had a moment like that? A moment where you thought to yourself, yeah, I've heard all the warnings. Yeah, I've heard all of the, you know, all of the scare tactics. I've heard all of that stuff, but I, 
I can handle this. I can handle this. The vice we're talking about today is the vice of greed. It's about being overly attached to money and the things that money can buy. And this, out of all of the vices on the list, this may be the one that gets written about, spoken of the most in the pages of our Bible. You see, if you were to look back through all of the stories and the writings of your Old Testament, if you were to study through some of those complicated passages in the major and minor prophets from writers like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Micah, if you were to study back through some of those passages and wade through some of the ancient metaphors and the illusions that they were making and some of the language that they used that's not familiar to us, if you were to wade through all of that and get down to what it was they were trying to say, you would find that all of those prophets were almost constantly trying to warn the people of their nations about the dangers of greed. They were trying to warn them about what could happen to your soul and to your life, and to your community. They saw how being obsessed with accumulating more could make you fail to trust God. And they saw how a preoccupation with accumulating more could cause you to ignore the needs of your neighbors. They saw how greed contributed to systemic injustice and oppression in every human civilization. And it wasn't just those Old Testament prophets. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote about this very pointedly in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said this, he said, Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap. I mean, listen to that language. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I mean, tell us how you really feel about it, Paul, you know? Like he's laying it out there pretty plain. He says, this, this journey that you aspire to take to becoming somebody of means, coming some, becoming somebody who has it all or as much as you can get, he said that journey is just rife with pitfalls. Like there's all kinds of traps along the way. And then in the next verse he says, for the love of money is a root. You know what a root is where something starts growing from, right? He says, a lo the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, listen to this, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. And I, wanna, I want you to notice here that Paul is using the language of firsthand observation. Like he sounds like an eyewitness here. He's trying to say, I have seen with my own two eyes, I've witnessed personally that what happens to people when they get consumed with building wealth, I've seen that this vice becomes a stumbling block for their faith. And on top of that, he says, I've seen how it becomes a stumbling block for their relationships. He says, I have watched people take this journey, and I've seen it hinder their relationship with God, and I've seen it hinder their relationship with their family and with the people around them. Paul says, I've seen it. And as you hear that, I bet you think to yourself, I've, I've seen that too. I've seen that. I've seen families who have become estranged from one another because of how some deceased relative's estate was divided. 
I've seen business partners who quit working together and quit calling each other friends because the business came between their relationship. I've seen people who have taken it, who would be willing to take advantage of a friend or a stranger alike, all in the interest of making a buck. I've seen it, and I know you've seen it too, because our own experience tells us. I mean, just our observation of the world tells us that the desire for money can make people do all sorts of unsavory and uncharacteristic things, right? Like, we have seen that. Observation tells us that there are some pitfalls connected to the pursuit of wealth that can lead to some really ugly outcomes. We know that's true about other people. Like it's really easy to see it in somebody else's life, right? It's easy to see it in somebody else's heart. It's easy to see it when it's happening to somebody else, but it is extremely difficult to recognize this vulnerability in ourselves. We think we're different. In fact, most of us tend to think that we could handle wealth better than other people do. Like, it's like this prayer that says, God, let me win the lottery so I can show you that I'll do it better than the other people who won the lottery. And so the question arises, how does a disciple of Jesus relate to money in a way that doesn't poison your heart? How does, this, how does a disciple of Jesus connect to money in a way that doesn't destroy or sabotage your spiritual life. And I, I want you to know, right as we move into this, we're not talking about backing away from the monetary system. Like, we're not talking about removing ourselves from the world. The Apostle Paul has some really strong things to say about that in 1 Corinthians. He says it's impossible to do that. If you tried to remove yourself from the world, you'd be removing yourself from where God's at work. Like, don't try that. We're not talking about saying no to being involved in the monetary system. We're talking about what does it look like for somebody who's decided Jesus is their Lord to manage their resources. And it turns out Jesus has quite a bit to say on this topic. In fact, when I say Jesus had a lot to say about how we handle our money, I'm not exaggerating, and I don't just mean that he mentioned it a couple of times. I mean that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven, more than he talked about the church, more than he talked about baptism, more than he talked about prayer, more than he talked about any number of topics that you could bring up that you would expect that Jesus would have had a lot of things to say about, right? The fact is, there is only one topic that Jesus seems to have spoken more about than he talked about money. He talked about the kingdom of God the most. But then he talked about money as a competitor to the kingdom of God. Jesus famously said in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve them both. And when he said that, he was explaining that the human soul is designed and inclined to serve something bigger than itself. But serving God and serving money, Jesus said, are incompatible goals. They don't don't mesh. They don't synthesize. You cannot do both of these things. You can't do both because the service of God is going to take you in one direction in your life, and he says the service of money is going to take you in a different direction in your life, and at some point you've got to choose which way am I going. He says you can't do both. 
You can't go in both of those directions. You have to make a choice. It's as if Jesus was issuing a warning. Imagine Jesus placing a Mr. Yuck sticker on your wallet. Not because, the, not because money's not useful. And it's not because money in and of itself is evil. Hear, hear us say that. But it's because Jesus knows you can become addicted to money. And you can become addicted to the sense of power and self-security and self-satisfaction that comes with money. Jesus knows how dangerous this is. Worse than any household chemical. chemical in your home. An addiction to money really is dangerous. And so Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned so much with how much money you have. Jesus is very concerned, though, with how much money has you. You see the difference? Jesus is not so concerned with the contents of your wallet as he is concerned with what place that wallet holds inside your heart. He's concerned with how much you want to have more money. And that's the issue that's being revealed in the story that my sister Meredith read for us just a few moments ago from Matthew chapter 19. In this story, Jesus is surrounded by these crowds of people. In fact, if you read this story in context in Matthew 19, you find that Jesus is going from one interaction to another, and there's all these people that are gathering around him, crowding around him because they want to hear what he has to say, and they want to receive healing, and they want him to bless their children. There's all this stuff going on, all this, all these moving parts. And in the middle of all of that chaos, there's people stopping and asking Jesus theological questions. And one of the questions that comes up is from this man who approaches Jesus and says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And maybe your translation says to inherit eternal life. Don't miss that that's money language, right? What what, thing, what good thing must I do to inherit or get eternal life? And there's, there's two ways you could hear this question. It's kind of multifaceted. On the one hand, he may be asking this question like kind of in general, a generic question. Like, Jesus, what does a person have to do? What, what are the requirements for somebody to get eternal life? Like the proverbial you, you know? Like, what, what do you have to do? He could be asking it that way. But on the other hand, he seems, he seems to be asking for himself. He uses I language. He's, he's got his own spiritual journey in mind. And we find out as we read through this story that this is a really upstanding guy. I mean, Jesus immediately rattles off six of the Ten Commandments, okay? I mean, like, Jesus, just off the top of his head, Jesus rattles these off as if he wrote them, you know? Wink, wink. Uh, he did. Jesus rattles these six commandments off, and he's like, well, I mean, you want to get eternal life? You follow the commandments. You know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie about people, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And this man, standing there listening to Jesus, like with a straight face, he goes, check, 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 check. Okay, got it. And according to his claims about himself, this guy is an upstanding citizen. Remember, this conversation happens in a big crowd of people. It's not a huge community, okay? So everybody knows everybody. And if he had, if he had said, yeah, check, check, I've honored my father and mother, and everybody in the group knew that he hadn't, somebody would have said, uh, hold on, objection, you know. Yeah, right, but that didn't happen. 
This is a good person. This is somebody who is a man of honesty. He's a man of honor. He's been faithful to his family. He's been faithful to his wife. He's been honoring to his parents. He shows integrity in his business dealings. And if all of this is true, and it appears that it is, this is the kind of guy that you would love to have move in next door to you, right? Like you would love to have this kind of neighbor, the kind of person you can trust, the kind of person that's going to be honest, the kind of person that has a good reputation, the kind of person who's trying to do right. You'd feel very comfortable saying, yeah, I'm going out of town. Could you come? Here's a key. Go water my plants. You know, like you'd trust this person. He's the kind of guy that you would love to do business with. He's the kind of guy you would love to marry your daughter. He's the kind of person that you would, it'd be great to have him involved in your civic organization. He, you'd love to have him involved in your church. He's the kind of guy that seems to have his life together. He seems to have his head on straight and his priorities in order. But he, he's, got, he's got such good character, and he's still looking for ways to improve. I mean, how honorable is that, right? He's out here, out here talking to Jesus, saying, what, what can I do to get better? What could I do next? And we find out later in the story that this man also has a lot of wealth. And the text doesn't say this, but it would be natural given all of the cultural things we know about in that day and frankly the cultural assumptions we make today too. It would be natural for us to think that this guy probably had some kind, there was a connection in his mind between his obedience and his prosperity, that probably his compliance to the commandments, he thought of that as at least part of the reason that, he was, that he'd done pretty well financially. I don't know if he assumes that or not. I bet he does, but even if he doesn't, what's happening here is that there's a man who thinks, my worldview is already pretty close to the one that Jesus has. My priorities are already pretty close to Jesus's priorities. And so when he comes and asks Jesus this question, what else is there left to do? He's trying to fine tune. He's trying to just tweak, you know, by a matter of a degree or two, trying to tweak his life to experience the greatest return possible, the opportunity to live forever. And Jesus's response, if you want to live forever, keep the commandments. check marks on it, then you're thinking, well, good, I'm on the right track. He felt like he'd done a pretty good job keeping the commandments. But he keeps going. Okay, I've done those things, Jesus. What else? What's next? What do I lack? And in this moment, it's as if Jesus holds up a mirror to this man's soul and asks him to take another look to look a little closer, look at yourself. And I, I just wonder, it's possible, small community, maybe Jesus already knew this man, maybe they'd met before, maybe by reputation Jesus knew who this man was and what his life was like, and it's possible that they were already acquainted and aware of each other. Or maybe, maybe Jesus' divine knowledge gave him insight into this man's heart. If you read this same story as it's recorded by Mark, who tells it in his own words, Mark stops right here and he says, Jesus looked at this man, he looked him in the eyes and he knew him and he loved him. He says, Jesus like stared through this guy, you know, 
and he loved him, cared about him. But obviously there was a connection. He knew him. Whatever the reason, however they knew each other, Jesus gives this man an instruction in the next sentence, the next verse, and this instruction is unique in all of the Scripture. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Now, I, I want to point out, I, this is not a commandment for everybody. As far as I know, there is nobody else in the Bible who was asked to give up everything like that, save for Jesus himself. But what's happening is that in this instruction, Jesus is applying the first of the Ten Commandments. You remember he already rattled off six of them a few minutes ago. He's applying the very first of the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall have no other gods before the Lord. In the pecking order, there should be nothing ahead of God. You shouldn't worship anything with as much devotion and dedication and reverence as you give to God. The greatest commandment, as Jesus would say it in his words later, is love God with your entire being, heart, soul, mind, strength. Love God with all of yourself. Don't hold anything back. This is the greatest commandment. And this is not a surprise. This is not unfamiliar. The entire crowd and the man who was asking the question, they would not have been surprised or unfamiliar with what Jesus was saying here. This is not shocking. They would have known this commandment by heart, love the Lord your God and serve him only. They would have begun every morning and every evening prayer with words similar to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall have no other gods before him. They would have begun, ever since they were children, they would have begun religious feasts and festivals with a recitation of how they came to that realization as a nation that the Lord is one and that he gave them this instruction, don't worship anybody else before me. So this is not a surprise. But when Jesus holds up this mirror, this proverbial metaphorical mirror to this man's soul, when he challenges him to give away his wealth, it distills this man's entire spiritual journey down to one single question. All of those years of obedience and effort get distilled down into one question, and the question is this, do I want God bad enough that I'd be willing to part with my stuff? Do I want God bad enough that it's more important to me than all of my stuff? Which is a big question. It's a big question to ask yourself. Like if, if, if God in the flesh, standing right in front of me, asked me to sell it all and give it away, Would it be an easy decision for me? Do I want God bad enough that I'd be willing to part with my stuff? And the text says that when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, the English here is funny. I don't think he was sad because he had wealth. I think he was sad because he knew the wealth had him. I think in that moment he was sad because he realized the, real, the situation. He realized the reality that at the end of the day, all of his attempts at 
all of his attempts at obedience, all the check marks he had made, they fell short of loving God with all of his being because the wealth had him. Said he went away sad, and sad's kind of a weak English word in this, in this situation because a, a different translation would actually say the young man went away grieving. You know what grieving feels like, right? We know that feeling. We know what it's like to grieve a loss. It might be the loss of a game, or it might be the loss of a dream, or it might be the loss of a loved one, but we're familiar with the feeling of grief creeping into our life, and that's what's happening with this young man. His heart's immediate response to Jesus' challenge, his heart's initial reaction to Jesus' instruction was, I'm not sure I can do it. See, one of the truths about grief is that grief shows up when we think that our situation has just gotten worse. Grief shows up when we think that our situation has just declined. And this man was feeling grief because in his heart of hearts, he knew that if he gave away all of his stuff, he would feel like his situation had just gotten worse. He couldn't yet bring himself to believe that life with God without the money could be better than life with part of God and the money. He couldn't, believe, couldn't bring himself to believe that he would be better off following God completely, even without any kind of fallback plan, even without any kind of safety net. He couldn't bring himself to believe that that was the better option, that full obedience would actually improve his life rather than diminish his life. He thought that would make things worse. And what that tells us is that the amount of money in the man's wallet and the amount of money in the man's accounts wasn't the problem. The problem was the meaning of that money in the man's heart. What the money meant to him. There was a preacher who lived 1,800 years ago in Egypt. His name was Clement of Alexandria, and he said about this story, he said, the young man's refusal to part with his possessions points to a deeper character flaw that Christ desired to heal. He said, Christ's command is not a command that he should throw away what he possesses and renounce his wealth. What he's told to banish from his soul are his notions about his wealth. He's told to banish from his soul his attachment to his wealth his excessive desire for his wealth and his anxiety about his wealth. Listen to this sentence. It's going to sound like old language, so you've got to lean in. Clement says, Those are the thorns of existence which choke the seed of true life. I know that sounds like a complicated sentence, but what it means is, Mr. Yuck, what it means is those anxieties those fears, those attachments, those notions in our soul about possessions, those are the kinds of poison that can derail a spiritual journey. And so the man went away sad. And the thing is, we don't ever know, we don't know whatever happened to him. We don't, ever, we don't know what decision he ever made. We don't know if he went away convicted. We don't know if he went away and sold his stuff and came and followed Jesus. We don't know the ending to that story. We know that after he left, Jesus and his closest disciples, the followers who were in the inner circle, they had a debrief about it. 
and they talked about this young man who had just gone away grieving because he'd been found to still have some progress, some way to go. They debriefed this conversation, and Jesus said to the disciples, he said, I'm telling you the truth. It is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, I, and I, y'all, listen, you got to hear that, sta- that statement. you got to hear that sentence and let it settle for a second. Jesus Christ saying, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And here we are, and you and I know that on a global scale and a historical scale, we're among the richest people in world history. And Jesus says, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that sounds a little bit terrifying. Jesus says, in fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, you're going you're gonna to read a lot of different interesting theories about some allusion that Jesus was making to something. something. I don't, don't overthink it. Like, think of a real camel and a real needle here, okay? To stuff that camel through that eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And that, y'all, we have to sit with that. If Jesus's words are true anywhere, then these, these words count too. This is what Jesus, this is the word of Jesus himself. It is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And as we sit with that statement, I want to give you this piece of insight that comes from trying to synthesize all the rest of everything else that those prophets and those apostles had to say about the use of money. And I want to tell you this, I'm, I'm convinced, I'm 100% convinced that Jesus is not saying that rich people are unwelcome in the kingdom of God. I'm 100% convinced that Jesus is not trying to say that there's a, there's a, a gate a bar at the door that keeps rich people from being allowed to come in. This is not a matter of God trying to keep rich people out. It's a matter of rich people deciding they can't come in. It's a matter of rich people saying no thanks. It's a matter of rich people receiving an invitation from God and saying, I'm I'm not sure that's for me. Because what's happening in the life and the soul of a rich person is that there's a temptation to try to serve money and it's pulling you one direction and there's a temptation, I'm sorry, there's an invitation to serve God and it's pulling you in a different direction and then you're getting tug of war, you're getting pulled both directions. And Jesus says it's really hard, it's really hard for rich people to choose to say yes to God. It's hard for that to happen, it's really hard. Because it seems so logical. It seems so natural. It seems so tempting to try to do it your way. And the disciples hear this, and they're they're astonished. They're freaked out. Their jaws hit the floor, and they're like, wait, hold on. Who can be saved? And when you hear them ask this question, what you're hearing is an echo of that philosophy I told you about earlier that says it's the rich people who have been blessed. Right? It was, it was that guy's prosperity that's made him some money. And everybody assumed that that was probably at least partially true. And they're thinking to themselves, well, if that guy can't get in, who can be saved? Who can get in? How does this work? And Jesus looked at them and said, 
this, and you've got to hear this statement. Jesus says, with man or with humans, this is impossible. <clears throat> he says humans wouldn't choose that on their own. Humans wouldn't choose to go God's way on their own. Humans would reach the limit of their generosity and their love, even for the people in their own family. There would be a limit to that, where they would finally say, never mind, I'm, I'm holding the rest of this for me. Jesus says, with humans, this is impossible, but he says, with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. You've, I know you've watched toddlers who are just learning the magic power of the word mine, right? Like, that's, that's like every toddler's favorite word, you know? It's one of those words that it's one syllable, but it's like heavier than an elephant. It's a really strong, powerful word, and it's really fun to be able to use that word when you learn how to use it. And parents of toddlers are constantly trying to fight against that impulse that says everything that you want is yours. Like, that's, no, that's not how it works. And so they're dividing up, you know, trying to keep siblings from fighting with each other over toys and snacks and all of that kind of stuff. No parent wants their toddler to be overcome with greed to be consumed with greed. And your heavenly Father doesn't want you to be consumed with greed either because your heavenly Father knows that's not good for your soul. And so we got to ask ourselves how to prioritize, how to reorder the priorities of our hearts. we got to ask ourselves how we're going to fight against this problem of greed. And as, as we do that, I, I want to ask you to do something I've never asked you to do this before in service before, but if you've got a cell phone, I'm going to ask you to take out your cell phone. I want you to turn on the camera and put it in selfie mode. Take out the camera, put it in selfie mode, and just use it like a mirror for a second. And here's the question that we're going to ask as we look ourselves in the spiritual mirror. If I continue to handle money and possessions the way I do now, for the next 10 or 20 years, what sort of character will I develop and what kind of person will I become? If I continue to treat money and possessions the way I do now, and I do that for the next 10 or 20 years, what sort of character will I develop and what kind of person will I become? I don't know the answer to that question for you. Nobody knows except you. Nobody knows the contents of your heart and what's going on in your soul in relation to this issue. But as you look yourself in the mirror, I wonder what your initial response is. I wonder what the initial feeling is. I wonder if it would make you feel grieved or sad. Because I want to speak words of hope into your life. I want to speak words of vision and compassion into your life, and I want to point out an interesting pattern that I've noticed when I look at the last couple of chapters of one of Paul's letters, the letter to the 1 Corinthians. If you were to look at 1 Corinthians 15, you would find a, a chapter that is chock full with Paul describing the, the validity and the, and the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, this is the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is laying out how important, how critical the resurrection is to our faith. In fact, he says things in this chapter like, if the resurrection's not real, none of the rest of what we're doing matters. Like, he, he speaks about it that strongly. 
That's what chapter 15 is about. And then chapter 16, verse 1, the very next verse after that chapter, Paul says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And I want us to notice how Paul connects generosity with the resurrection of Jesus. Because what Paul is saying here is that if the resurrection means something, if the resurrection has made a difference, then it immediately translates into the way that you handle God's resources in your life. If the resurrection of Jesus has made a change or a difference in you, he says it, it immediately has impact on how you arrange your budget every single week, he says. It changes everything about you, heart, soul, mind, strength. Love the Lord your God. Don't worry about what you'll eat or drink. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything you need will be provided for you. These are the words of Jesus. I mean, over and over, we keep hearing that the resurrection, the lordship of Jesus would change us. The resurrection impacts even our wallets.